The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Boomer Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Equally at home in a Swansea social club or the Commons Chamber, my guest today developed a reputation as a formidable and passionate campaigner, from the Fair Funerals campaign to the menopause. After leaving school at the age of 16, she had no design on a career in politics, but after suffering personal tragedy, she stumbled upon an advert for foundational courses at the local job centre and enrolled as a mature student at Swansea University. Her studies would lead her to the role of parliamentary assistant to Sean James, who she succeeded as MP for Swansea East in 2015. Since entering politics, she has become the first ever deputy leader of Welsh Labour, been appointed to Jeremy Corbyn's shadow team, and, after co-chairing Keir Starmer's leadership campaign, became parliamentary private secretary for the Labour leader. However, these days she prefers the view from the backbench. She said, for me to keep my mouth shut is an issue. On the backbenches, you're free to say what you think. It suits me. So with that, I'm delighted to um, introduce my guest today, Carolyn Harris. Hello. Now, Carolyn, on this podcast today, um, for which you were in the Spectator building for the first time. I am. Good to make history. We always ask people, how would you describe your childhood? Was it a happy one? Yeah, I was an only child. My mother had lost a, a child before me, so... It, when it happened to me, it was a little bit like deja vu, if you like, for my mum anyway. But I did have a really, really good childhood. I was spoilt. I loved ballroom dancing. I actually did proper ballroom dancing competitive till I was wow. 16 from the age of seven. Did you win um, any medals? Yeah, I won loads of medals. Loads of awards and medals. Danced everywhere. What was your best dance? Probably the rumba. Love the rumba. But it cost my mother and father a fortune because there was dresses and there was shoes and there was dance lessons. But, you know, that's the kind of family we were, working class family. But I was put first, front and centre. And I had, I was at night's clothes and I was at a TV in my bedroom and the stereo came out. People don't know what a stereo is, but I had a stereo. So I was spoilt, but um, I wasn't spiteful with it. I was always very willing to share. You grew up in the constituency Swansea, yeah. which you now serve. Now, you mentioned that being from a working class family, and you've spoken a bit in the past about growing up in a household where money was tight. Mm. Were you conscious of that growing up? Yeah, I think so, because I, I can remember my mum and dad struggling to pay bills, but they always put the money for my dance lessons to one side. That was really important. And yeah, and when I had nice things, Christmas, and when I had nice clothes, I know they struggled to find the money for that. But I suppose a classic of that is I wanted to be a medical doctor. All through school, I was determined I wanted to be a medical doctor. I'm the kid who carried the calpol round in the, in the basket when I had a headache, you know, and I was a school nurse putting iodine on everything when I was, what, eight. But the thought of going to university just was not something anyone in my family had done. One person in my street had, I couldn't name on less than one hand how many in the community. So I just never became a doctor and then ended up leaving school at 16 and going to work in the DVLA. Did you have any teachers say to you, oh, maybe you should think about doing it? One of my 
careers teachers when I went to a CA when I was about 15 and she said oh Carolyn what do you want to do when you leave school what's your career path and I said I'd love to be a medical doctor but that's not going to happen and she said no no come on no dear let's be realistic about this and I think that gave me if I'm honest my imposter syndrome because since then I've always thought these things other people are better more qualified better educated can do these things better and, and that's how I lived my life until I became an MP. When you left school, you, as you say, you took a job as a barmaid and you described it as a very happy time. You also got married at 19. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I became a barmaid after I had after I dad, Martin, because it was something I could do and we needed the money. We couldn't afford for me not to work. And it was something that fitted in with, you know, somebody was there, my parents were there to have to have Martin when I went to work and tips on a New Year's Eve and a Boxing Day were phenomenal. So it was well worth doing. Now, in the introduction, I mentioned that, in a way, your life took a turn you didn't expect. Um, And and one of your campaigns on funerals, ultimately, this was the death of your eldest son, Martin, in a traffic accident. You said the day you lost Martin, half half of you died. Mm -hmm. I wondered if you could just, in a way, uh, tell us about what happened from that point onwards for you. Uh, It took me about two years, actually, to to stop looking at kids in the street and thinking, oh, there's Martin, you know. You see it in films and you think, oh, that's weird, but it's not weird, it's true. You you, you so desperately want to see your child again. And I, I was really tough two years. I couldn't, I mean, my husband was telling me when to get up, when to cook food. I think it was only, I, I mean, this has actually happened to me. I remember sitting in the bath and making a, a, a calculation who needed me most, you know, thinking, should I stay? For, St- for Stuart, because that was my, he's my middle boy, but he was my only child then, and David and my mum and dad, or should I go and be with Martin? But I, I reasoned that I couldn't put my family through any more pain. So after I'd made that decision and I started accepting the fact that I'd lost Martin, I didn't stop hating. I didn't stop hating for a long time. I didn't go to church. Not that I'm a fanatical mm-hmm. Christian, but I mean, I did fa- I've always found church to be a comfort. Didn't go to church... I didn't engage, didn't laugh, terrified to laugh. If I smiled or I laughed, I would think the people think I didn't love Martin anymore. So that takes a long time to get over. You know, even now I get a bit guilty if I'm having a good old laugh and think, oh God, what would people think of me? They'd think I don't have my son. But once I got over that, and you don't get over it, that's, that's wrong. When I got to the point, when I wake up in the morning, I knew what, I knew what how I felt that day and I knew what I needed to do to get through that day. That's when I ended up becoming a, din, a dinner lady. Well, I, I was working as a dinner lady by now with kids who were profoundly disabled because I thought, for me, that was, I would have, I, I would have taken Martin anyway. I, I didn't care. I remember saying to the doctors, I'll take him home with a life support machine. I don't care. Let me take him home. So I, I found working with, with kids with problems really rewarding for me because I just felt I could give them something but then when I went to the university and did a a test to see an aptitude test on a really old-fashioned black and white computer and they said now there's two things you can be here you can either be a brain surgeon or an astronaut and I said well there's not a scope for either in Swansea so let's just do a foundation course then shall we and see where that takes me does that mean you nailed the test I nailed the test. You know, there wasn't any places on the course that year. They said, the, co- the course is full and we can't take you. Then I did the test and they said, on second thoughts, we're going to squeeze you in. Um, and then that year, the first year, the course was only for a year. I became student of the year then. 
So it must have really irritated the other people who'd been on the course a lot longer. But I made good friends on that course. We're still lifelong friends. I was going to say, your classmates were probably a bit jealous of you at that point. Well, the one who I really became very close to is now godmother to my youngest son. And we've been so eight, it wasn't that bad. Were the other students a bit younger than you then? Or was no, it all, they, it was all fact, mature students? Yeah, yeah. there were there were a couple who were younger, but nobody was sort of under 25. Yeah. I was 34 and they were... I'd say I'd I'd say thirty five to forty was the average. Yeah, I always kind of think actually, if I'd gone to university a bit later, I would have probably done a lot more work. Yeah, and maybe got more more focus. I think well, a lot of the youngsters with us were doing that, you know. Yeah, and I've lost my essay. No, you haven't. You were drunk and you had hangover. You haven't done it. And that's why you're not going to be student of the year. Now, how does that take you to the Labour Party? Because you go into work as a parliamentary assistant, but I wondered, was posed. Were you aware of politics growing up? Did you, did you obviously, growing up in Swansea, did you grow up in a Labour environment? Oh, I've always been, I've always loved politics. When all the kids were going up the park when it was voting day and the school was shut, I would be at the polling station taking numbers. You know, when I knew the elections were coming up, I'd be knocking the local councillor's door, asking for posters and stickers and rosettes. Loved it. Don't know why, I just loved it. I just felt, I felt that... I had more int- I used to love watching Harold Wilson on telly. All my friends thought I was pretty sad. So if you wasn't watching Harold Wilson, I was out ballroom dancing. So it was, I was That's quite, quite challenging as a child. So I'd always been always loved politics, always loved the Labour Party, always did what I could for the Labour Party, but never, ever, ever, ever thought that I would ever be in a position where I could represent the Labour Party. Neil McBride, who was my predecessor's predecessor, predecessor, used to stand on the school gates, do it. He lived in the constituency and he used to stand near the bungalow and he used to stand at his gate when I was going to school every morning and he'd say, Good morning, Carolyn, how are you today? It won't be long, now, but it's leafleting. And I thought, he's an MP and he knows my name. My God, this was a bit like, take that for everybody else. And the same with Don Anderson when, when I was a kid and campaigning for Don so just always loved that buzz so when you graduate do you apply for the parliamentary assistant job or no, no? Um, when I graduated I started a centre for disaffected youth working with kids who were on the brink of offending some kids who were school refusers some who had serious drug problems so I sent up this rehabilitation unit if you like which is alternative curriculum and then I did some capacity building for a, um, a Christian charity actually we were working with the New Deal and then I went to work as the regional director of a children's cancer charity, fundraising and trying to get money for kids for the last wish before they left this world, which was something that was very personal to me and having lost Martin. And whilst I was doing that, then Sean asked me, would I help out in the office only a couple of days every now and then just to do a couple of letters? And before I knew it, 10 years later, I was running the constituency office, the parliamentary office, and was about to be standing as the candidate. And had you ever thought about being no, a Labour MP? No. At what point during that time working as parliamentary assistant do you start to think, when, oh, maybe I could do that? Well, when Sean stood down, I think... Did she suggest it? The members suggested it. I think the members assumed they would, but I can remember when Don Anderson retired and people were saying, oh, you've got to stand for this. And I'm like, me, be a par- be an MP, you've got to be joking. I can't, I don't know enough. I've never, oh, I could never do that. So when Sean came along to be selected, I supported Sean because I thought, oh, well, this is a woman who knows what she's doing. And But when I became working for her and I became the parliamentary assistant, I realised that I was actually doing quite a lot of the work. The only thing I wasn't doing was standing up in the chamber and delivering on it. But I was writing a lot of the speeches and whatever. So when Sean decided to re- retire, I felt that I owed it to myself 
to have a go. It's the only time I think I've ever thought, you owe this to yourself to do this. And my husband said, well, you'd be mad if you don't. And everybody said, oh, you've got to try. And I did, and I got through, and I got elected. And what did your family think then? Your, your husband's supportive. Oh, my husband, yeah. He's, very, he's still very supportive. I mean, we don't always agree politically, but, you know, it, uh, he is very supportive. My kids are always really supportive. They're supportive except on social media. They get really frustrated with the rubbish that goes on social media, and especially if it it comes back on them, if people know who they are. And, and it's interesting how many people give my children casework. I'd say, oh, can we see your mother? Will you ask your mother? Can, can she do this? Can she do that? But that, you know... Um, yeah, but my my mum had passed away. She passed away in the 2014, just before I got selected. So she never saw me as an MP. She would have been, oh, my mother would have been, you know, garden party, big at, there for the maiden speech. She would have been there. Everybody would have known now Carolyn's an MP. Marks and Spencers would have known now Carolyn's Public an gallery MP. gallery every day. Oh, yeah, she'd have gallery. been there. She just stalked me. <laughs> my dad, uh, by the time I was an MP, my dad wasn't too well. He couldn't travel. He'd had a bypass operation. So he was very proud of me. And, you know, he always used to say, oh, I saw you on the telly this week. What's that uh, camera on about now? Because camera, you know, and <laughs> Yeah, it's 2015, yeah. the intake. So um, he didn't, I can't say what he said about Boris, but he passed away um, in, 20, in 2019. Not PG, beyond PG. <laughs> Yeah, before PG. Uh, My dad passed away, well, my dad passed away New Year's Eve 2019 and I hadn't seen him for three months because of the restrictions. And we we couldn't have a funeral for him because of the restrictions. So that was a tough time. Now, when you um, became an MP, you'd obviously worked out how much a parliament works from working in the office. But I just wonder, was there anything that surprised you when you suddenly the Member of Parliament, maybe it's how people treat you or maybe it's a little bit about speaking publicly, I I don't know. I think what shocked me more was that it's not as adversarial as people would like to think it is and how much actually goes on in the tea room in terms of communication. And I've got now, I've got really good friends on the Tory benches because I realised that the only way to actually get anything done is to get people to support what you want done. And, you know... I am someone who, from really working class, before I came into Parliament, IDS would have been the devil incarnate. He's now a good mate. And now I speak to him regularly because I've seen the person he is and not how he's portrayed. And that's true of a lot of people. So I, what I learned very quickly was that, especially as an opposition MP, if you want to get something done, you've got to, you've got to be nice to people. And that's everyone, from the person who cleans the toilet to the person who says you get an opportunity to speak in the chamber you've got to treat people with respect and you've got to work with people because if you don't you won't get anywhere now i mentioned the introduction um your campaigns and not that long ago we had the spectator parliamentarian awards and you won campaigner of the year and i think it probably leans into what you're talking about of how the fact you actually have to reach across the house yeah and particularly when you're you know you're not in government and also you're not even you know shadow shadow secretary is particularly important to try and get the support where you can some of the campaigns so there was uh, fixed odd betting terminals there's the more recently the menopause campaign but I thought going back to what we were talking about earlier there was the child funeral campaign which I think was one which touched a lot of people I wonder if listeners who haven't been following but that you could just talk them through it yeah I mean it goes back when I lost Martin and I suppose anyone who loses anyone, but when you lose a child, when you 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 don't think about how much is that going to cost. You don't think which coffin shall I have. You don't think, you know, what's going to be on the order service. How much is it? So uh, we just didn't think about it. And 
about a fortnight after I lost Martin and we'd had the funeral, the bill came. At the time, it was £1,700. Now, that's not a lot of money, but I wasn't an MP, so it was a phenomenal amount of money. David and I, David was working on the railway, I was a barmaid, and the dinner lady, we didn't have the money to pay for that. We know we didn't have the money to take the kids on holidays, never mind pay for that. So we, we I, I just got to thinking... God, I was terrified, if the truth was told. I thought, my God, I can't afford to bury my son. Now, about a week before that, friends from the pub where David went to, they'd come to the house with an envelope. And in Wales, we very much like when there's bereavement, people turn up with tea bags and boxes of sweets and tins of biscuits. And, you know, they just don't know what to do to to make, to make do something to help you. And they, they'd come up with this envelope and said they'd had a little bit of a whip round. And we opened up the envelope, and it was a £1,000 in there. And then David went to the bank and explained to the bank manager, and they lent him the £750. Now, I always wore a gold cross around my neck, a crucifix, which I'd had for years. And I wanted Martin to be buried in that, so we put that on Martin. So David had borrowed an extra £100 to buy me a crucifix to replace it. So we had he had an £850 loan, which I think took about five years to pay back. But that was a financial struggle for us, because, you know, to have a loan on top of having to pay for a mortgage and everything else, it was a real struggle. When I became an MP, I wanted to do something which would commemorate Martin. I'll be honest about it. I wanted him to have a legacy. But I wanted other people not to ever experience what I'd experienced. So I made the speech in an adjournment debate, asking the government, could they consider, at the time, covering the local authority fees, which even today can be anything up to £4,000. And it, it was quite a moving speech, and it did touch a lot of people. And then I got inundated with emails and phone calls and letters from people who'd been in the same position. One told how they'd had the... A headstone taken off the grave because they hadn't been able to pay for the headstone and the stonemason had, re- had recovered it and others saying that the debt collectors come to the house because they'd been referred to a credit agency for non-payment and I and I guess undertakers have a bad rap because they're in a business which you know they've got to make money but not everybody can afford a funeral so I, I do get both sides of this coin but I just didn't I wanted parents to have as little as possible to make their world even more awful than it was and I asked and then the Welsh government almost immediately within about six months they introduced a children's funeral fund which we called Martin's Fund and then the UK government with Ed Agar at the time was running was running the, the the bill and he was absolutely brilliant and was saying you know, we're going to do what we can. And they give a little bit more than the Welsh government. And now the Welsh government said, oh, well, we're going to give more. And then Scotland came in and said, are we going to give in? And we're going to give more. So now no parent even gets a bill for their child's funeral. And I'm always touched when I get letters and emails from people now who say, you know, oh, I couldn't write at the time because I was too distraught. But I just want to say thank you because we lost a child or we lost a baby and it's just done something. It's, it's Martin's legacy, but it so means so much more to parents in that position. And it keeps going. Now, you mentioned Welsh Labour. Now, you're, yeah. you're the deputy and you mentioned the Welsh Government. How do you find splitting that with your kind of daily MP duties? And um, yeah. yeah, it's OK. I mean, it's meetings more than anything, yeah. which usually at the weekend during the evening. So some nights I do think, why the hell did I agree to do this when I've had two hours on a Zoom meeting when I could have been doing something like my knitting or Doing something. a dance. 
Well, two of the dance, yeah. But, no, I like it. I just thought it was really important. When they decided to have him, um, it had to be a woman because we had a man and we still have a man as a leader. I just thought it was really important to have a balance of somebody in Westminster and someone in, in Cardiff. So I went for it and I won it. And I, I love it, actually. It, it keeps me keeps me busy. I love campaigning, so I love going out knocking doors. How do you find Mark Drakeford? I read recently that he might not be the most popular politician in the country which could be wrong by the time this goes out because people always get very funny about this but not to be cruel to Mark Drakeford but on the surface I don't think people would have guessed he'd be like the most kind of no Mark is very cautious and he's very reserved whereas I am not very cautious and I am not reserved so we're completely different characters which I hope makes us a good balance because I want to run and he pulls me back or I may posh when I think he should have a little bit more oomph so, yeah, we get on quite well. I wonder if this is a theme, because I would also say that the way you describe Mark Drake compared to yourself, you could also describe Keir Starmer. Yeah. Um, who you said is, to quote you, one of your besties. Yeah. And you worked on his campaign. Yeah. I wondered, having served under Jeremy Corbyn in the shadow... Yeah, role, home office you? team. Yep. And um, women and equalities. Um, Why did you want to get behind Keir Starmer? Keir's been my friend for a long time. And I, if I'm honest, why did I go in the shadow team when, Keir, uh, when Jeremy was there? Because... Nobody else would. So it was a case of, this looks really bad, we need to get people. And domestic violence was really on the agenda then, with the, the bill was only just starting. So, And I learnt a lot from doing it. Never liked it, never liked the front bench at all, because I do feel curtailed that you can actually say and do what you want. But I was saying, I mean, I think I said to Kia the very first day I met him, you're going to be the leader of this party one day. So I pushed him and pushed him. What made you, the first time you met him, what stuck out to you? Well, I heard about him all, throughout my career. I heard about this guy yeah. called Keir Starmer, who'd done this and who'd done that. And I don't know what I was expecting. I think he probably was the first knight of the realm I'd ever met. I saw him on the benches and I thought, well, I'm going to make sure he knows who I am and we're going to have a cup of tea. Um, we just, I mean, just two people who got on really quickly, really easily. And we're still great mates. We still, but we, we don't talk about politics much now. We just talk about football and the kids and, you know, we mates. Because you were PPS for him for yeah. a while and then for around a year, I think. Yeah. And then I was just wondering, when, when you stopped being his PPS, there were some reports of, you know, yeah. it was around the time of the local elections. Yeah. I think Angela Rayner's name was thrown in. Can you just tell listeners what happened or didn't happen? Well, I don't know, actually. <laughs> That's fine. We just don't I, I don't know, actually, because it was all a load, load of nonsense. But, yeah. you know, I, I was ready to go. I okay, ready, so you, know, I, and you chose to go? Yeah, off. I yeah, wanted yeah. to go. I mean, I was ready. I think I'd have gone, I would have gone sooner, except the election was coming up. So I thought, I'll leave it till the election. And uh, I did. And I'm not sorry. Best thing I ever done. <laughs> and then um, I wonder, you touched on it there. I was going to say, I think one of the things with Keir Starmer that lots of people have, though clearly he's doing better at the moment there might be because Boris Johnson's doing badly you know maybe it's a bit of both is that he can seem I suppose quite composed and loyally which isn't necessarily a bad thing but you're obviously um a very vibrant character so I wonder when you're like hanging out with your bestie like what do you guys do um, watch the football well he, he loves football and yeah. I well I like football and my husband loves so we talk about that if he comes down to stay on holidays well then we'll take we'll go up with the kids I mean, I'm not saying we don't ever talk about yeah, about politics, but it's not it's not our only thing. It's not the thing we have in common. And I don't know what it is we got in common. It's just a bond. And I love him, I love his wife, I love his kids, and we're just good mates. How do you find Boris Johnson? Because I just wondered in the sense that there was recently a Prime Minister's Questions. I think it was maybe just before Christmas went behind when you asked him a question. And, he, and I was sat in the chamber and he said, this is the n- nicest question I've had all day. 
the hydrogen. Well, you weren't you weren't trying to help the prime minister. Well, I just wanted him to thank me really because I put the tree lights on for him. I'd gone to number ten for a meeting about gambling reform, and I I dropped up to number ten, as you do, and I thought the door opened automatically, but the door didn't open. But on the wall was a grey box, and I thought, oh, that must be the bell. So I pressed the grey bell, thinking it's the bell. The door did open, but the tree lights came on. I went in and said, lovely tree, oh, that's lovely. And they said, yeah, Prime Minister's coming at five o'clock to switch it on. Um, And I said, oh, that might be a problem. So I sort of walked out backwards, switched the tree lights off, went back in, had my meeting. Everybody was absolutely hysterical, including Ian Duncan Smith, who was with me. I'm hysterical now. And he was like, I can't believe we've done that. So everybody started talking about me switching on the tree lights. But what was even more funny was later on the night when he did try to switch the tree lights on, somebody turned him off at the mains on the inside. So when he pressed the button, they didn't come on. And I think the story was... Boris Johnson can't even turn the tree lights on, and I can't. Karen with... can. Yeah, but I did. They were fine when I switched them on. <laughs> Just get Labour to do it. Yeah, I'm the only opposition MP who's ever turned on the Christmas tree lights in Downing Street. So I'm, that's got in my CV. I should have put that in the introduction. <laughs> I messed up. <laughs> tree gate. <laughs> the final question on this podcast is one we ask everyone, yeah. and I think hopefully you've been given some advance notice because it can blank people's minds. What is the worst advice you've ever been given? And it was interesting earlier hearing you talk a bit about imposter syndrome, which it sounds to me like sneaky crush. You've now you've now no, got over it. No, no, no. Still, still don't think I should be here. Still wait for someone to come and tap me on the shoulder and say, "I think they made a mistake with the count." You shouldn't have been here in the first place. Oh, dreadful, terrible imposter syndrome. But I think the worst piece of advice I've ever had was when you go in the chamber, don't be too nervous because that makes you really, really, really nervous. So I always say to people, just do what you've got to do. And, you know. But that's the worst bit of advice was just go in don't think about what you're going to do because once somebody says that you go in thinking oh my god my god, my god, my god. so no. thank you Karen thank my you pleasure. for joining us thanks today. Katie